0: Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. My guest today is Kathy Kleiman, an author, lawyer, and professor. So
1: I'm not a historian. At least I didn't start out that way. I started out in computer science and political theory and then went to work on Wall Street, managing data networks, and I went to law school. So now I'm a professor of internet law and technology and intellectual property at American University, Washington College of Law. Along the way, and actually particularly as an undergraduate, I found a story. And it was a story so powerful that it inspired me to stay in computing at a point where I was getting many signals as a woman, as a young woman, that computing was a field for men.
0: The story that Kathy found is what brings us here today. Kathy is the author of a recently published book, Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer, as well as the co-producer of a 2014 award-winning documentary on the same topic, The Computers. In her work, Kathy researched, interviewed, learned from, and ultimately befriended the original programmers of the ENIAC, that is, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, the world's first modern computer. And when I say the programmers of the ENIAC, I really mean the individuals, all women, who literally developed modern approaches to computer programming. This was the first computer. Programming wasn't a discipline at the time. There weren't books that you could read or classes that you could take to learn how to program. You couldn't ask ChatGPT for help. There weren't even programming languages at the time. There was only the computer, along with the human ingenuity and the will to make that computer solve complex problems. These six women, the first programmers, figured out how to do that. They and their ideas went on to shape how we program to this day. I am happy to welcome Kathy Kleiman to Tech Refactored to share with us the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Your career trajectory, it's non-linear. I'd say, (laughs) um, which I I think is great because in in many ways, the book is about the ENIAC computer and it's used to calculate (laughs) nonlinear ballistic trajectories. (laughs) We we won't get into differential calculus uh, too much in this conversation. (laughs) Um, But can you tell me just a, a little bit about your career path and how it both led you to this topic and also facilitated your pursuing it and ultimately producing a documentary and writing this book?
1: Terrific. Well, this means going back to college. And uh, when I went to college, my mother said, study anything you want, but computing is where the jobs are going to be. And she was, of course, quite right. And so I did have some advanced placement credits. And I was able to both study in my major, political and social theory, and also to take computer science courses. And I really liked computer science courses. I liked programming, Pascal, C, Lisp. But as the number of courses went up, the number of women in those courses dropped uh, precipitously. So you kind of look around and you're like, wait a second, where are the other women? Faculty was great, my fellow students were great, but still there's that question in the back of your mind. There are two famous women in computing that we all know, Lady Ada Lovelace, and then Captain Lady Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the U.S. Navy. Um, But uh, Ada Lovelace was in England in the 19th century, and Grace Hopper was in the 20th century, and that's about one woman a century being successful Mm -hmm. in computing, which did not seem particularly good. And so I went looking for other women. I took a course in American women's history and I went looking for American women in the history of computing. Don't and, ask me why.
0: And that this was your undergraduate thesis you were working on?
1: Actually my junior paper in Junior paper, okay. Junior <laughs> paper that was supposed to lead it was supposed to lead to a senior thesis, mm-hmm. which it, it ultimately did. And so I didn't find I remember going through all the secondary sources. Encyclopedia of Computer Science and other things looking for women's names, frankly. And other than Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper, they just weren't there. But also, what was interesting was there was a gap. The history of early computing had been written as a history of hardware. Mm -hmm. And so the names of the engineers were there but not the names of the programmers and of course there must somebody must have been programming these things but it was it was a real gap and the subtitle of my junior paper was men are hard and women are soft mm-hmm. that men uh, that the history of computing seemed to be a history of hardware which which did seem to be very male dominated men were engineers in those days um that's changing and I'm happy to say that but women seemed to be very very involved in software and that history seemed to be undocumented and then I would continue this topic and particularly the story of the ENIAC programmers in my senior thesis. And it turns out that the ENIAC, which stands for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, a secret U.S. Army project at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the Moore School of Electrical Engineering. And during World War II, the Army paid for engineers at the Moore School to build the world's first general purpose, all-electronic programmable computer.
0: Can you explain what general purpose means there? I think it's important to understanding what the ENIAC really is.
1: That's a good question. So actually, we should probably put the adjectives general purpose and programmable together. And it is exactly what we know today, except it didn't exist at the time. The idea that the same hardware could do anything, that you could reprogram hardware, which was huge in those days, to do different projects, different human tasks, Uh, by changing what instructions, basically, you're communicating with them, was a revolutionary new concept. The idea of doing it all electronically, ultra-fast, had never been done before Mm -hmm. because electronic technology was still in its early days.
0: This is pre-transistor. We're talking vacuum tubes.
1: Vacuum tubes, absolutely. But at that time, mostly huge hardware was dedicated to a single task. Mm -hmm. It was basically hardwired to do something. And Dr. John Mockley, who was a physicist, actually, not an engineer, a physicist, had this idea that we could use this hardware again and again and again for different tasks. Mm -hmm. But no one would fund it for a long time. And then the war came and funding was available. Mm
0: -hmm. Funding was available because wartime, the government, uh, DOD, is just going to spend money on anything that might help the war effort, basically.
1: Well, you have to, you know, put in a proposal and make a good case. And in this case, the case was it had to do with ballistics trajectories, the path of a shell from the time it leaves the muzzle of a gun, a big gun, a cannon, Mm -hmm. till it hits the target is a differential calculus equation. And you can take into account the weather on the battlefield and snow and rain and crosswinds All of that can change the path of that shell. Mm -hmm. So where do you shoot it? Turns out that what angle you aim the gun can be very, very well predicted with a differential calculus equation. But you need lots and lots and lots of variations because no one's going to sit in the mud of the battlefield for 30 to 40 hours calculating differential calculus.
0: 30 to 40 hours.
1: 30 to 40 hours to do one equation.
0: And at the time, that wouldn't be just writing out on a sheet of paper. That's using calculating machines of the time.
1: Well, you could have written it out on a big piece of paper and they they probably started out that way doing that. But when the US enters the war in December 41, by the time you get to summer 42, The Army has realized it does not have enough male mathematicians. They're on the Manhattan Project. They're at Los Alamos. So they go initially to Philadelphia and then up to New York and across the country looking for women who had majored in mathematics. We didn't even know at the time how many women there were. And they gave them this differential calculus equation to uh, calculate. They brought them all to Philadelphia to the Moore School of Electrical Engineering And each one had a desk, and she had, as you've alluded to, a mechanical desktop calculator that ran with gears. And so if you're multiplying very large numbers, it could do it, but just two numbers at a time. And then you had to sit and painstakingly write out the result, re-enter it, do the next calculation, painstakingly (laughs) write out the result. So the women were working down very long sheets of uh, white paper.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really love about the book is – I'm not not sure what it is, Uh, whether it's a biography, if it's a kind of a hidden figures biography in particular, whether it's a personal history for you, because I I know this story is a very personal story for you, or whether it's a intellectual history or history of science sort of book. And you kind of weave all those together, and you can read it in any of those ways. And just on uh, the points that we're on right now, We went from old guns, cannons that you could see where they hit, to Mm -hmm. the development of the howitzer, which you couldn't see where it hit the target because it was going tens of miles at a time. So we had this differential calculus equation that Berlin mathematicians developed that we then had to solve by hand. And then we had calculators, both in terms of the mechanical calculator, but also the people running these calculators to the development of the differential analyzer, this mechanical gear and pulley sort of thing for solving these two the development of the ENIAC, and all along the process, the scientific challenges of doing this, but Mm -hmm. also the people who were being brought in to help with it. And this will take us to the story of the ENIAC 6, the six women who were brought in ultimately to program this. But I just want to highlight one of the things that just struck me so much in this book, the, the difference in terms of Intellectual histories between this book and so many others. Uh, we we were speaking earlier. This isn't a great man story. Um, <laughs> it's it's not about singular contributions. It's a very different story. So with that as my rambling a preface, um, can you both respond to that a little bit, but also bring us to who the NEXx are?
1: Sure, but let me let me respond a little bit to something you know quite nice that you've observed, which is that it is, and thank you for noticing, that it is an unusual story. I told it actually the way I work on internet technology. I told it to many different audiences. One of the things we have to do in internet law and policy is assume that we're talking to a lot of different types of people with a lot of different types of backgrounds, because we are. So how do you explain complicated areas of law and regulation to technologists? Mm -hmm. How do you explain complicated layers of the internet to intellectual property attorneys. One of the ways to do it is is with stories and with background and by sharing the history and the background, you can kind of throw in enough technology or law, not to scare everybody, but to to bring them along to understand the points of the argument that you're making. Mm -hmm. In this case... I knew—you mentioned I had a documentary. I do, and we'll talk about later, I think, how I I came to record four of the original six programmers of the ENIAC, all young women at the time, and I interviewed them when they were, of course, much older. But I had had an opportunity to travel around the world with the documentary in 2014, 2015, 2016, and I knew that my audience for the book, at least the one I wanted, was wide—technologists, computer scientists, students— older people we don't know the story of world war ii on the home front what was done here was incredible and yet i found so many people both young which i expected and older who did not know much about the men going off to war and the women filling all sorts of non-traditional jobs that had Mm -hmm. been closed to them during the depression when no one had jobs but even before that there were jobs that were male oriented and that all changed during the war And so this enormous opportunity that opened that, frankly, paved a path for women to come into the workforce later. And so there were a lot of different audiences. And I'm very happy to share that some of the fan mail that I'm getting now is coming from older technologists, from Mm -hmm. from guys who have been in the field for a long time, who are writing to me frequently and saying, I did not know this story. And Mm -hmm. I'm excited to learn it. And I'm thinking, well, you weren't quite my main audience, but great. I'm so pleased because actually one of my main audiences and one of the reasons I read it so accessibly was Mothers, the way for more girls to go into STEM is for their mothers to support them in doing it. These are still non-traditional paths. And Mm -hmm. so if we can kind of share a new history, a new idea of who's included, that these aren't all male fields, that they're much more inclusive, hopefully that will help everyone find lucrative, interesting jobs for the future. A long answer, sorry about (laughs)
0: that. Which brings us to the, the NEXX.
1: Yes. So let me tell you the story in brief, and it was a story that took me about 15 years to piece together, which is that during World War II, as we were talking about, the the Army, actually all branches of the military and, and many other groups, women with any background in STEM had 20 to 25 jobs that were open for them. I'm not sure they knew it at the time, but anyone with backgrounds in science, technology, engineering, and math was needed in mm-hmm. many different places. And by the way, it's, it's similar now and uh, according to projections from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, 10 years from now, the need will be even greater. Mm-hmm. So um, these are areas of opportunity. And the Army, the Ballistics Research Lab, which was studying ballistics trajectories in Aberdeen Proving Ground, which is rural Maryland, realized they need a lot of people, a lot of women to calculate these trajectories. Rural Maryland was not where they were going to find them. So they relocated up to Philadelphia, which has you know just a plethora of schools. Um, and that were going co-ed at the time. So the University of Pennsylvania was newly co-ed. Drexel and Temple had been co-ed for a long time. Uh, You also have Bryn Mawr, where Catherine Hepburn went, and Mm. and many other famous women. A lot of schools in the area, and so they went there to recruit women. Then they would go up to New York City and recruit from Hunter College and other places, and then across coming out, you know, advertising into Nebraska, actually, Mm. uh, through the science and, and math journals. So ultimately, there were 100 women working at the University of Pennsylvania on these ballistics trajectories. Their title, just as it was in Hidden Figures, was Computers, capital C. A computer was a person long before it was a machine. And so they were computing ballistics trajectories, using the desktop calculators, working two shifts a day. They'd sometimes be on day shift. They'd sometimes be on night shift. They mostly stuck with their team of 10, which was 10 women. Mm-hmm. And the supervisor, who was one of those 10, was female as well. So these were kind of these wonderful, incredible groups of women working together, well-respected. They felt well-respected. They also felt well-paid. They were unfortunately classified as sub-professional, which has led, I believe, to an enormous misunderstanding by historians of what they actually did.
0: And that, that's the government classification for the employee for professional and pay and all those sort of purposes.
1: Right, the civilian army classification, exactly. And I think it had a lot to do with pay. Mm-hmm. Although, again, they they felt that they were being very well-compensated uh, compared to secretaries they were. But unfortunately, they couldn't calculate as quickly, even with 100 women working flat out, as my British documentary producer would say, they couldn't calculate quickly enough. And the reason why is these are very complicated equations. They do take 30 to 40 hours by hand. And that is just not you know, a production train uh, process. So the head of the, the computing project, somebody named Lieutenant Herman Goldstein, a PhD mathematician, Basically goes around the Moore School kind of wringing his hands and, you know, to quote someone else, saying, you know, who will rid me of these, you know, calculations or give me another way to do them? And someone whispers in his ear, go talk to Dr. John Mockley. And Dr. John Mockley was working on radar experiments, another Army project. He was on the roof testing radar, which was big technology at the Mm -hmm. time. And Herman Goldstein kind of you know bangs on his door and says, "Somebody you know told me to talk to you." And John Mockley says, "Yes, I have an idea for building something that could calculate these trajectories much, much faster. <laughs> I just need to build you know an enormous." An enormous steel machine in the middle of the war with um, ultimately, oh, yeah, 18,000 vacuum tubes and, you know, tons and tons of steel and wire, which was all in short supply. Mm-hmm. And Herman Goldstein says, are you sure it will speed up these calculations? And John Mockley by then had paired up with a young engineer named Jay Presper Eckert, who would later be named engineer of the century. But at that time, he's 23 years old and he's not engineer of the century yet. And despite the fact that every other major technologist of the day said this was impossible, this machine will never work for more than a few seconds, John and Press say, no, no, we, we can make this work. And so, together with Herman, they drop a proposal. The Moore School agrees. They take it down to the Army. There's a great conversation where they're talking with the head of the Ballistics Research Lab, and he's got—he's in a big wooden chair, and he's got his feet up on the desk. And there's an argument going on: Is it worth spending this money? Two hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money in 1943. It's about uh, the equivalent of five to seven million dollars today. And finally, uh, Veblen, Major General Veblen, slams down his chair and says, "Give Herman Goldstein the money." And ENIAC is funded, John and Press go to build it, Herman checks on them from time to time, and a huge machine goes up on the first floor of the Moore School of Electrical Engineering in a back lab, uh, eight feet tall, 80 feet long, but its purpose is not just to be the first modern computer, its purpose is to calculate ballistics trajectories. Mm -hmm. And
0: when you say that, you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, we're talking about the contractual purpose, the reason that the army is paying for it is, we don't care about your computer we care about what it can do.
1: Exactly, exactly. So the, the after two years, the machine is built, they've done a lot to requisition and get the supplies for it, and then they go back to the contract, exactly right. And uh, John and Press talk to Herman Goldstein and say, we need people who will figure out how to program this monster, and it is a monster, how to program it for the ballistics trajectory. And Lieutenant Herman Goldstein goes and finds and asks six of his best computers whether they will do it and also whether they'd be willing to relocate to Aberdeen Proving Ground, rural Maryland, uh, which is about an hour and a half south of of Philadelphia, after the war to go with the machine when it's relocated to its, its final home base. And they look at him, they shrug, and they're like, okay. Uh, actually, two people say no, and that's how one who's a, a second alternate becomes uh, one of the. Uh, Jean Jennings Bardick likes to say uh, she was the second alternate, never thought she'd be a programmer, but two people said no, and <laughs> she said yes. Uh, and she says, always say yes to new yeah, adventures.
0: I love that uh, attitude and that idea. Saying yes to new adventures is how you have new adventures.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and she's only 22 years old, I think, when she's doing that. It's amazing. So these women actually go down, they train in Aberdeen Proving Ground, they spend a summer down there, and uh, they're learning the IBM input-output machines, card punch, for anybody who used to program or talk to people who used to program about uh, 40 years ago, you would have used card punch for input-output and instead of typing, and then they come back and they're ready to go into the ENIAC room, boom, they're not allowed in, they don't have the clearance yet. Goldstein, What were you doing? You should have been giving them the clearance to go into the room. But no, they can't go in to see the ENIAC, which is now built, but it's in testing. 18,000 vacuum tubes, which is the electronic components that are running it. That's a lot. And to coordinate everything and to check everything, the engineers are still testing and testing. So one young engineer comes out with a bunch of rolled big white papers. Big white papers are a big theme of my book. Everything seems to have been done in big white papers at the time. And big, uh, you know, they're all curled up, and he uncurls one, and it's a wiring diagram of a unit of the ENIAC. And he kind of teaches them to read through it. As one would say, we learned the ENIAC from the back forward. We learned what the vacuum tubes did, and then came around the front and learned about the front of it, which was the programming interface. Mm-hmm. So he kind of walked them through how to read one of the units. I don't know which one. And then left the rest of the diagrams with them. Says, I have to go back and keep testing my unit. You guys figure out how to make this work. Mm-hmm. He's like good luck. <laughs> if you see us in the hallways, you can ask some questions. And I,
0: I, anyone who has learned modern programming nowadays, this has to sound so foreign to. And this is being given the blueprints of a CPU <laughs> and being told, "Okay, now go develop uh, C or Pascal or uh, Java or something to make it do stuff basically."
1: Right, exactly right. Exactly. Mind-boggling, completely mind-boggling. But when I asked them about this years later, Kay McNally, Mockley Antonelli would shrug and say, it was World War II. Everyone was doing out-of-the-ordinary things. This was our job to do, so we did it. I'm like, you know, I can see you doing that. Um, so they divided up into pairs. They each took one of the units. Each pair took a unit of the ENIAC they, you know, drilled down, worked with the wiring diagrams, occasionally buttonholed the engineers in the hallways to learn a little more and then figured out how it worked, came back, taught the others, and then they divide up other units, go off and come back. And eventually they learned how each of the units of ENIAC worked Mm -hmm. and how to interface with them. Because you have to put your program on the ENIAC in those days with cables
0: and switches. Can you explain a little bit more what that means, put your program on it? Actually,
1: I'm gonna back up just a little bit because the next step is really breaking down the trajectory into the steps the ENIAC can handle. A human computer has a lot of intuition and it kind of you know knows the next step. And if you do a multiplication, if you tell somebody to multiply using a desktop calculator, these two numbers, you don't have to tell them. You have to click the one and click the three or you know put the number in. And then you have to push the button for addition. And then you have to put the other number. And then you have to push the other button. You do have to tell a computer mm-hmm. these steps, particularly in those days. So they had to break down the trajectory program in a different type of way. And they did it, and they created big white sheets – here we go again – that they called pedaling sheets to pedal from one instruction to another with the incremental steps of a trajectory calculation on the left, and then on the horizontal axis, and on the verticals, you've uh, you've got the columns with each unit of the ENIAC, and then what switches you're setting and what plugs you're plugging in Mm -hmm. for every step of the program. And so once you've got that, then you can go into the ENIAC room, for which they have now finally been given access – And first thing you do is inventory to make sure there are enough wires. There weren't. So the engineers, these are not things you could go to, you know, Radio Shack or the hardware (laughs) Mm -hmm. store and just buy. So the engineers build a few extra wires that they need. They've got enough now. And then they start wiring the ENIAC. And that's what we're calling the setup is literally plugging in from the high speed multiplier to the square root divider. You're taking the product of the high speed multiplier, putting it as input into the square root divider for, you know, a division problem. You're literally plugging both sides of a big thick cable that will pass the number, the digits, literally the digits, the, the zeros, the ones, the tens, mm-hmm. to the next unit. It's really, it's fascinating.
0: It's kind of like uh, passing variables between functions, only instead of doing it with, with code and typing in the instruction nowadays, you've got one unit, which is one function, and you've got another unit, which is another function, and you need to run wires between them to configure how they'll they'll operate and pass data between them.
1: right. Right. And then I should add, then you also have to send in a program pulse that tells that instruction at that moment in time in the program to run.
0: So they have the background as computers. They've developed their program to calculate ballistic trajectories. The ENIAC is still top secret at this point, right? Yes, absolutely. How do we learn about their work? And how does the world learn about the ENIAC? So by now the war is over. Interestingly enough. And I'll quickly interject. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book. The, the pacing is fascinating because as a reader, I'm so accustomed to there's some big reveal. And in the early part of the book, I kept thinking, okay, so the computers are working on these hard, complex equations, and one of them's going to have the Alan Turing breakthrough that lets them solve them in four steps instead of 400 steps. And that's not what the story is. That's not what it's about. It's not one of them was brilliant and saved the day and they won the war. They they don't do that. And they don't, <laughs> with a, we win the war, but it's not because of the computers work helps with the war effort. But we don't have the Enigma machine breaking the German code. Suddenly, they've solved it and the war is over sort of thing. This is a very different story.
1: This is a very different story. And you're right. Let's go back to that. The computers, capital C, the women their effort was absolutely critical to the war effort. There's a quote somewhere that I'm still trying to track down, we think it was Winston Churchill, that says, we were scared of their tanks, the the, the German Panzer tanks, which were incredible and light and, and could go lots of places. So we were scared of their tanks, but they were scared of our artillery. The accuracy of US artillery was unprecedented at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was a huge breakthrough because during World War I, we didn't have great artillery, but by World War II, not only did we have great artillery, we had accuracy, and that was the, the firing tables. So these firing tables were told by you know journalists that were on the field, this is what really did shift the war, mm-hmm. was great artillery and great firing tables. So the computer's contribution is well-documented. Mm-hmm. But the Enneagram, no, did not save the day at all. In fact, it, it occurred to me at one point, I mean, I didn't even realize I was talking with Betty Holberton. It was incredible to know her. And she was telling me the story about how they were working and how they were programming. And finally, I put two and two together. I'm like, Betty, the war's over. Why are you working so hard? And she said, well, there's still a job to do for the Army. Okay. So everyone's still working wartime hours, the engineers and the programmers after the war uh, for about six months, and there was a contract to deliver. The army still wanted the ENIAC, and so six months after the war ends, the army decides to reveal the existence of ENIAC, which is, of course, not done in other, with other secret technologies like the Colossus that cracked the Enigma code, the German codes. The army wants a big reveal. Here they were. They experimented. They paid a lot of money for a machine no one thought would work, and it works, The big reveal is that the world is gonna change significantly. This isn't just a wartime technology, Mm -hmm. although no one quite knows that at the time, but they know they've created something really seminal, really pivotal, really new. And so that is a universal feeling because the ENIAC can do an addition in one five-thousandth of a second. Nothing had ever, ever been that fast in the history of the world. And so John Mockley's vision was exactly right. Jay Presper Eckert was an incredible engineer. And the women's programming shows uh, the magnitude of the change. Something that took 30 to 40 hours by hand Is now going to be calculated in seconds. So let's show it off. Demonstration day, February 15, 1946. The doors of the ENIAC room are flung open and world's leading uh, scientists and technologists come into the room from MIT and Harvard and uh, from New York City, and they all take the trains down, they come in, and the ballistics trajectory is run and this group knows what a complicated equation that is, how long it takes to calculate by hand, and it's run in 20 seconds. Faster, the master of ceremonies says, than it takes the shell to leave the muzzle of the gun to hit the target. Mm -hmm. And that day, the world changes in a very significant way, but a way that we'll have to find out over the next 100 years, Mm -hmm. which is the information age, the computer age starts. And that's front page news, But no one really knows what it means. In fact, they call, they don't know what really, the reporters don't really know what a computer is. Nobody really knows what a computer is, except a very, very small core of people. Um, They call it an electronic brain. (laughs) And Jean Bardick loves saying, it's not a brain. They're not thinking. You know, computers don't think. (laughs) And uh, she, she loved responding to the headlines. But that's how people thought about it for a long time, was electronic brains. But the world will begin to change, and we will begin to create much easier ways through programming languages. To interface with these increasingly complicated technologies. But it all starts at one moment, and I I really think that moment is February 15th, 1946, at
0: 11 a.m. And a lot of people responded to that with celebration and uh, plaudits. Uh, There were award ceremonies or dinners and all sorts of fancy stuff for all the men involved in the project. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Where where were the NEXX in the celebration and the recognition? Of this accomplishment, and I'll ask this question in the the brutal sort of way: the next fifty years of history.
1: Okay, let's break it down if if we can. So, uh, of course, it was a dinner that night. It was it was a Friday night, and uh, you had the president of the University of Pennsylvania there. You had the head of the National Academy of Sciences who who came in, and uh, they invited the president, but he was a little busy. So, it's the deans of the Moore School are there. The the generals and, and the leaders of, of the army are there, John Mockley and Press Eckert, and the engineers are there. The women are not. The women are not invited. And we don't know if it was an oversight. We, we don't know why. But I did ask them about it, and I had the opportunity to talk with them about it. And uh, Kay McNulty-Mockley-Antonelli was pretty philosophical uh, it was the Moore Schools Day. They were honoring the deans. They were honoring the engineers. Um, they were honoring the Army brats, as she'd say. And she said the women sort of fell between the cracks. Um, there was no one really to stick up for them and, and make sure they were invited. Initially, in fact, the young engineers had not been invited. But John and Press kind of drew a line and said they need to be invited. But no one, no one said that for the women. Betty and Jean felt, uh, you know, a little slighted even 50 years later. They knew they deserved to be at that dinner. They should have been invited. But it didn't change the fact that they had gotten a lot of compliments from their own team, from the engineers. The engineers who knew who made the day. You know, they built the ENIAC, but if it didn't have a successful trajectory program, it was not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so the women, through thousands of hours of hard work, had really made that successful program Um, And so they went home. They celebrated with their families. That day, the ENIAC had made headlines in Philadelphia and across the country, so they could finally tell their families what they were up to. So they were able to share what was done, and there were celebrations at home, quieter celebrations. But the fact that they were not introduced at that event, that they were not introduced to the journalists as programmers, the journalists who would cover and come into the room now that it's open and cover it and take pictures, they're in the pictures, but no one has told the public what they're doing. And so they go down in history. I'm told 50 years later they're models. I'm like, what models? No, this. Mm-hmm. They didn't look like models to me, um, and so I tracked them down. And j- but just that's... be
0: clear when you say they didn't look like models to you, you, you explain in your talks and in your book. It's because they looked sophisticated and like they understood what this machine was, not because oh, they're they they do not look like models. They're not pretty enough. That that's not what you're saying there.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. No, they're young women and they're beautiful. But um, there are there are several pictures that are taken quite close up of the women with the ENIAC, which is towering over them. It's it's eight feet tall of of black steel with, you know, lots of places to put wires and lots of switches and rather baffling. Any of us could have walked into that room and I believe we would have looked baffled. And these women looked like they knew exactly what was going on. And, you know, they're posed in front of the machine. These are all posed pictures. But they look like, you know, as long as we're here, let's study the switch settings. It was just Mm -hmm. a confidence um, and self-assuredness of what they were doing, that led me to think, you know, there's, there's more to this story.
0: The work of these women was so pivotal to the development of the ENIAC. But, as you just said, 50 years later, you ask who are the women in these pictures, and the answer is their models. They, they'd been forgotten. Why, how, what happened to their memories, so the memory of them and their work over that time?
1: I've had some time to think about this. Let's think about the generation they're from. We call it the greatest generation now. And, you know, if you've met World War II veterans, now increasingly rare, but, Mm -hmm. you know, over time, they don't tell you what they did. I mean, you really have to know somebody well for them to tell you what they did on D-Day or for them to tell you the story of, you know, the Pacific battles that they fought in. They're not going to tell you they have, you know, awards and honors from their work this is a very modest group. And so these women actually were extraordinary. They did not go home after the war. They continued to work with the Army. They continued to work and program ENIAC. Um, They became the teachers of the next generation of ENIAC programmers. And some of them went on to create the programming languages and programming structures, the foundations of, of programming that we know today because they wanted computing to be easier and more accessible. Their brilliance is part of why we're all using computers today. So they didn't go home some of them kept working all of them became amazing members of society but ultimately they all got married and had children which is one of the things i love about them is they lived these incredibly rich diverse lives and they told their families their stories but their job wasn't to you know go out and proclaim to the world what they had done. They were thrilled to watch the world changing Mm -hmm. based on their work. But that was their World War II work. And then they went on to the rest of their lives. And it wasn't until I kind of came banging on their door and knocking that um, they began to retell the stories and realize that there were lots and lots of people who wanted to hear them. And when we got them awards late in life, they just lit up and the audiences lit up. And I remember a standing ovation from Women in Technology International when we had, I don't know, I think four of the ENIAC programmers were on stage. And suddenly there's like this this huge, a thousand women stand up applauding. But there are tears coming down there. You know, they're crying in the audience too. It was wild. It was just amazing. And I think that's when the ENIAC programmers realized that their story touched many people. Mm. But it wasn't their job to tell the story. It, it took someone else.
0: There's something deeply fascinating in that for for me as an academic and a theme that I personally saw in the book as I was reading it The role of recognition in creation and invention and credit. So many of the characters in the book, uh, both characters that you talk about directly and also in the background, the deans of the Moore School, for instance, not to call out academic (laughs) administrators in particular. And and I'll also say there there are several very famous men in the book that uh, you talk about. And the need for credit for your work as an academic, this is one of those things that I feel very viscerally, some folks really care about the citation and the authorship and who gets the credit and other folks, I honestly put myself in this camp, care about the work and they care about the fun and the creativity and doing good stuff and not so much about the, is my name on the prize? Um, Am I getting my first or second author on this paper? And there's so much in the background of the book. I don't think this is something that you're writing about in particular. And, and they're also, I think, one of the things that more particularly is in the book on this, there, there is, I think, at some level, a gendered element to this. And it's just something that I want to note that as I was reading the book as an academic, I was thinking about regularly throughout the pages.
1: I'm glad you mentioned it. You read it with a very special eye, which is, is very valuable. So thank you. Recognition, credit, that was certainly not what the women were trying to achieve. You're, you're absolutely right. The recognition and credit of the time of the era went to the soldiers. And even later, that, that's who they thought it should go to, which is why it's a subtle change, the introduction of the information age, the computer age, riding immediately upon the closure of World War II. And the credit really is, is focused on World War II and the recognition of the people coming home as it well deserves but also that team, that uh, the concept that's underlying what you're talking about, that the team is important, mm-hmm. that we don't need individual recognition. We we want the team to go forward and do good work together. And that's where the sense of pride comes from. And they were still a team 50 years later when I when I met them. All they wanted to do was talk about the other members of the team. I'm like, no, what did you do? <laughs> um, getting them to focus on themselves, on what they did, on their unique innovations, which you're right, we're so used to thinking about and seeing, was not, it took a long time. It took us a long time to do that together. They were happy to be recognized as a team, and I, uh, I hope we will continue to recognize them, and to talk about them, and to share their work and their innovation. And one of the things I tell young women and young men in computing, but young women in particular, is please do put your names on the papers. And mm-hmm. if you're head of the team, put your name first. I call it leaving breadcrumbs for the historians. <laughs> and I hope everyone will do it. But you're right, there there are people who do and people who don't. And in this world, you have to you, you do have to step forward and take credit for what you do.
0: So one of the The reasons that you wrote this book and that you dedicated 15, 20 plus years of your life to this project um, and getting to know these women and documenting their work is because they were invisible or forgotten to history. And at some level, we said earlier when we were talking, this isn't about correcting history. It's about revealing the history that was there and we just didn't know about. I'm somewhat hesitant to ask this question, but... How has the book been received? How has uh, your work here been received by the broader community?
1: Um, first, let's go back a second. That I didn't just 15 years while I was doing, a, I, I was working on the book, on the research, on recording the women with incredible people that helped me uh, and who, who had a lot of production skills. But I was also a lawyer and uh, working on a legal career, and raising a family. So you know, 15 years of of lots and lots of wonderful things going on. But ultimately, what spurred me to write the book had to do with the same thing I do in law, which is justice, justice, fairness, balance, that here was a story that wasn't told fully, and with balance, and with fairness, and I wanted to see justice for the women and their recognition. So for me, it, it was a little connected to some of my technology law work. But that is not the question you're asking. It's about the recognition. I am thrilled to say that there has been a, a lot of nice recognition of the work. I'm here on your podcast. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to talk to lots of, of wonderful people across the country. I've been talking to high school audiences, college audiences, graduate school audiences, STEM teachers who are just doing incredible work around the country, there are still a few computer science historians who uh, seem rather committed to a rather sexist view of history. But I, th- I think we're going to...
0: You're, you're going to gonna... win. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just say, I'll, you're right, you're going to win.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Are, are there any particular lessons or messages that you want to highlight from the book that you want to make sure the book is putting out into the world?
1: Yes. Then and today... When I talk with my friends in Silicon Valley, diversity is key. Diversity of perspective, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of languages and cultures. Women and men created computing together, and for all the STEM jobs that are opening up now and in the future, we should know that there shouldn't be barriers to any one group. We need anyone who's interested in STEM should feel that they are welcome in STEM. And you and I and others, we, we will continue to work with Communities that are growing so that we can welcome everyone into STEM instead of portraying some of the old stereotypes.
0: And what about for you personally? How has this project changed your life or affected how you think about things?
1: As you said at the beginning, I had a very personal relationship with the ENIAC programmers. This is also a personal story. They were my role models, they were my mentors, and when I entered, internet law and policy. It was a brand new field. Mm-hmm. And I was a very young lawyer. And there were a lot of barriers to joining. There was there was a sense that girls didn't know technology. Fortunately, I did. There were lots of stereotypes. And I would call some of the ENIAC programmers, and they would encourage me to be what turned out to be a pioneer in a new field, um, we didn't know it at the time, just like they didn't know it originally at the time. But they said, if you're interested in something, go do it. Or as Jean would say, life is an adventure, go live it. Mm-hmm. And so their encouragement helped me find my passion and the legal area that I wanted to work in. So I hope that their story helps other people find
0: their passions. You know, I, I think that that is a perfect sentiment to wrap things up on. Life is an adventure. Go live it. Thank you, Kathy, for taking the time both to speak with me today, but also to be committed to working on this project and sharing these incredible stories.
1: Thank you, Gus, for the opportunity to come to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and to talk with you and the incredible students and faculty here.
0: Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC.